Welcome to Wise Up Governance and Boards podcast, brought to you by Three Wise Owls Governance Consultants. Covering hot topics in governance, risk, latest regulatory changes, and issues keeping directors and executives awake at night. Here are your hosts, Ainsley Cunningham and Deb Anderson. Welcome to today's episode of Wise Up. Today we are joined by Rhys Walker. Good morning, Rhys. Good morning. Hi. Rhys is a leading capital markets lawyer and has extensive transactional experience in public and private capital raisings, mergers and acquisitions and restructures. Rhys's broad experience includes applying his knowledge of the Corporations Act and ASX listing rules, as well as advising on governance, stakeholder management, employee share and option plans and general commercial issues. Reese has been consistently rated as a leading capital markets and corporate M&A lawyer by Asia-Pacific Legal 500, providing high-quality advice and being committed to the client's needs. Since 2017, Reese has been ranked in the corporate law category of Best Lawyers Australia. His work has covered the life sciences, technology, telecommunications, travel, food and agribusiness, engineering and resources sectors – are there any other ones that have left out, race? <laughs> <laughs> no, that about covers the field. Thanks, Deb. <laughs> His clients include multinational corporations, ASX-listed companies and early-stage companies with high growth potential. Reese is chair of partners and a member of McCulloch-Robertson's executive leadership team. Welcome, Reese. Okay. Thanks, Deb. Thanks, Ainsley. Very impressive. So tell us a little bit about Reese Walker. Yeah, thanks, Ainsley. Um, look, I think uh, Deb very kindly covered a fair bit of the uh, territory there in the intro. But uh, for me, um, in my professional career, I've always been a uh, corporate lawyer specialising in ECM, uh, so equity capital markets, mergers and acquisitions and governance issues. Um, in more recent years, I've had the opportunity to also further my experience in the leadership space um, within our firm and also with some voluntary directorships. And I think it's an interesting intersection between uh, advising companies on governance issues and also getting to see how they work in practice from my own personal perspective. Yeah, it's a really unique perspective to have, Reese, And I think too, um, a lot of the um, where they do interject is kind of really where... um, the magic happens for a lot of companies that, I guess, embark on that IPO journey? Absolutely. Look, I think you're seeing, too, um, the the flow of uh, trends in the ASX-listed space um, coming into private company space as well. So a lot of the lessons from the ASX-listed space are actually really relevant for companies that are going on the IPO journey who will need to live up to those standards, so to speak, but they're relevant for all companies to have an awareness of because those trends are really flowing through. Yeah, I think that's the biggest pain point for us. We find that the companies aren't getting ahead of governance earlier on in their life cycle. Absolutely. And I think that's where it's really important for um, companies to um, generate their awareness of, of what those issues are. Um, before you set about solving them, you even need the base level of understanding of, of, of what those issues are and where they're sitting on the spectrum of the practices, policies, culture that they may have and where they need to get to. And I think um, one of the key observations for me advising in that space is often um, companies leave that until too late in the journey so they're not engaging with governance professionals uh, to set up all of those things that they need to address and it's actually very difficult to leave it to the last minute if you're doing it at the back end and just treating it as merely a compliance exercise you're not really going to get the value out of doing it. Um, and it also means that you're probably not going to go about it in the best way. And it can, can be incredibly overwhelming too, isn't it, just in terms of policies and procedures you need to implement. If you haven't had them um, in place before, all of a sudden you've got, this is all the governance you've got to put in place. It can be quite overwhelming. I think that's right, Deb. Uh, look, there's... Um I guess an assumption sometimes that there's a a, a template or a checklist that'll fix that and uh, it's actually not that easy. I mean, some some of it's about the fundamental cultural piece and it'd be good to discuss that further. But in terms of the technical piece, um, each of those policies takes a a while to bring together. There is a... a, a, uh, a, a basis which, um, well, there is some commonality to the way that a lot of the charters are drafted and particular policies, but each company is going to be different. And for example, I had a director ask me the other day about 
just putting in place a template governance charter. And within a few minutes of starting that discussion, uh, it was quite obvious that that particular director for the purposes of the ASX would be deemed not independent, which then means that you wouldn't necessarily comply with a lot of the listing rules around independence and the majority of independent um, directors on the board, for instance. So um, that sets off a whole range of, of discussions about how you either disclose against that or whether structurally you try and change that. Again, none of those changes can happen um, uh, on the eve of listing. It needs to be a, 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 a real journey. And I think um, there is sort of uh, a timetable of, you know, for an accelerated IPO where it's a, a clean skin IPO, very simple, may have one technology, already have uh, all of the things in place. You, you might be luck, lucky and optimise that to around a, a three-month timetable if you're very lucky. Um, my experience is that that's very rarely the case and there's usually a couple of things that come up um, during the course of the process. So it may actually be a six-month process. Um, if you've got a company that's got no... Um, previous experience of, of listing and the, the founders or directors are not experienced in that space, they're not working with advisors that are experienced in that space, it may be more realistic to allow up to 12 months to work through all of those issues because there's a range of financial, legal and governance issues that need to be put in place. And obviously from the company secretarial and governance side as well, to make sure that they're working with someone that's got the right experience who can take them through that IPO process, but also then be have the right skills to advise them post-IPO um, once they're in a, a continuous disclosure environment, which is really a new world and, and quite a culture shock for a lot of companies to be in. Yeah, and I think it's a culture shock for employees as well. So like you've mentioned, sort of, um, you know, tech startups and things like that, um, they are very much a unique culture in their own right, Um you know, the sort of T-shirt wearing, sand shoe wearing, um, you know, pat on the back sort of club. Um, and they uh, really struggle when it comes to, um, you know, suddenly being um, given all these policies and procedures that they have to comply with that they might not really understand. And I think that's where the implementation and staff training and increased awareness sort of needs to happen earlier on so that they're not sort of bogged down in, um, you know, trying to prepare for IPO. They're all, they're actually already semi-aware of some of these things like codes of conduct and, you know, when they do list, they then understand, well, why do I have a securities trading policy and... Yeah, yeah. look, that's absolutely right, Ainsley. It's, it's a... Um very um, uh, sort of um, significant event in the company's life, but you can't underestimate the significance of that for the individual employees and the mind shift that they need to make as well. So in many ways, the IPO can be a fantastic experience for them. Um, there's opportunities, obviously, to put in place remuneration strategies and equity incentives that help align um, the company and the employees um, and also with the, the shareholders, um, which is important not to forget about having that alignment a, a, across the board. But things like a securities trading policy, I mean, typically when we do an IPO, we will get the uh, senior people together in a room and actually talk them through that securities trading policy and run through a few examples. And people don't realise something like what we call barbecue talk, where someone might ask them how the company is going and a, a company, a, an employee in a tech company might say, for example, oh, fantastic, we're just about to sign this contract with XYZ. Um, and it's a real mind shift because, it, you know, when in startup space in, in tech land, it's all about um, self-promotion, promoting the company, all the great wins and jumping straight on social media, which is very different to an ASX continuous disclosure environment where, um, as you'd be aware, the, the rule is as soon as you have material information, you must disclose that to the market first. Um, so that's a really big uh, change in the way that, that people go about things. Um, there is also, I think, a, a cultural shift. So in terms of startup stage is all about minimising unnecessary costs and focusing that towards product and just trying to get people to understand that compliance and thinking about um, 
those sorts of issues um, is not an overhead. It's actually integral to being ASX listed. It's integral to your reputation and ultimately it will cost you if you don't get it right. Yeah, I think um, changing mindsets for people in that space, Reese, is really difficult where um, even really uh, well-established, mature ASX-listed companies um, see it as an unwanted, unnecessary expense as opposed to an investment and a value and a benefit, um, especially when they're increasing uh, changes to um, sort of embed a more robust governance framework. Look, that's right, and I think that's why it's important for anyone that's considering listing to get the right sort of advisors around them. So both from accounting, legal and company secretarial and governance perspective um, and have that discussion early on so that that sort of change in thinking can be adopted um, early on in the piece so that when they're at at the point of listing um, that everyone's aligned with how that's going to actually work. And we do see, you know, particular, I think you mentioned obviously the the technology type companies and startup companies, um, obviously a lot of those founder-driven companies where there hasn't been a lot of external input before, that sort of culture shock that what might be a private business now suddenly has public scrutiny um, and the sort of measures that you need to have in place to, um, you know, stand up to that that public scrutiny because you're on show um, 24-7, um, 365 days of the year um, and you need to be ready to, to respond to, to things that might arise but also need to be thinking ahead about the normal sort of periodic dis- disclosures and annual reports and that sort of thing. And it's quite often a shock for the these sorts of companies um, when they go to do their first annual report exactly how much detail is in the annual report because no one's actually sat down and, and talked to them and um, that that can be quite confronting as well. And the auditors can, uh, you know, there's lots of questions being fired at you for, you know, weeks and weeks on end too so it's, it is quite an onerous process to go through. It is quite an onerous process, Deb, and I, I think... Um, Having a that, necessary one, a necess- yeah, yeah a, a, a necessary and very important one. But um, you know, if I can use, say, the classic example of, say, employee share plans, I think that's one of the most complex sort of areas: uh, the, the intersection of taxation law, legal issues, ASX listing rules, Corporations Act reporting. Um, there is no perfect solution, so there's a, a trade-off along a. A lot of those different issues as to you know matching the outcome that you're looking for, and I think I've lost count of the number of IPOs now where it sort of gets a bit hard at the end of the process. So you end up sort of with an omnibus plan to maybe cover future eventualities, and then um, I think everyone has the best of intentions that at some stage that you'll get back on top of that, but it invariably ends up that you're in that first uh, sort of AGM season and. Um, there's, you know, quite often uh, particular approvals that are involved with that. So um, the, the whole concept of um, a decision being made, but then you have to work back f- from that. And it might be three or four months because of the need to draft things, lodge with ASX, lodge with ASIC, um, then put that to shareholders so as a 28-day notice period. Um, so that sort of forethought and, and being sort of counselled through that process by an experienced company secretary uh, and an experienced team um, can minimise some of those sort of friction points arising um, at a time also that you'll have employees looking to you to see that you have followed through on, you know, promises that have been made or expectations that have been set. Yeah, absolutely. And a lot of those um, hinge on the financials being completed and all those sorts of stuff. So you're straight out of the firing pan and into the fire when it comes to that um, reporting season window. And you also find a lot of um, finance teams do overlook employee share plans in terms of um, valuation methodologies and, you know, whether it's a Black Skulls model or a Monte Carlo simulation or all of those sorts of things. And they also um, don't appreciate the amount of time it takes to actually get an independent outsourced valuation report completed. Um, there's a limited um, sort of, I guess, service provider um, options out there for that. And they all... Um, hammer them at the same time so even that in itself is um timeline compression and then also every year 
um, that employee share plan or employee incentives as a whole is changing. It's one year it's a loan funded share plan, the next mm. year it's an option plan, the next year it's a share plan. Um, you know, right. yeah, you might add a DRP or a, a dividend in reinvestment plan to the mix. Or um, absolutely, there's so many changes in trends that yeah, if you've not even got the baseline right, being able to try and to keep up with those, and I think um, the other factor that we see really coming into play a lot now is the role of proxy advisors, so heading into AGMs. So there's an engagement piece there as well to understand what the proxy advisors are looking for and um, they will have particular views on, on what is an appropriate uh, style of plan and then within the style of plan, you know, what are the, the KPIs or the vesting criteria that they see um, currently, uh, the optimum ones that, that companies should be adopting. So it can be um, quite a, an intensive piece of work that, that sometimes um, doesn't get factored into the mix. And occasionally the regulator has a say on it as well. That, that can, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. That, that can be the case. Um, but I think, too, coming back to the point about valuation as well, even just the, the, uh, the surprise factor that quite often the, the valuation, when it's done on one of those methodologies that you've spoken about, can seem like quite a large figure. So it is quite confronting that that will be published. And in many cases, um, because of the nature of those methodologies, it, 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 it might seem that it's um, sort of a, a larger number than what in reality may actually be be the case at the end of the day. But um, the, the fact that that's suddenly out there for people to read and um, also for um, the, uh, the board, the executives and their colleagues to read as well um, can create some problems. And I think um, most companies these days... Uh, uh, fairly sophisticated when it comes to talking about the client experience or the CX. Um, I think the the next evolution is talking about the employee experience or the EX and that's sort of um, sometimes lost in the mix that what you're doing with listed companies isn't just about compliance, it's also about the experience and how that's translating for your team as well and your ability to obviously retain key people is is really important and you know, particularly as you've gone into an IPO, um, you're relying on having all of those people there driving the uh, profitability for you. And sometimes you think you've just struck the right balance between um, all stakeholders and then you'll go into an AGM and you'll still um, potentially be um, uh, get a strike for your REM report. Yeah, look, that's right. And we have seen, um, in my experience, some quite... Um, interesting, if not um, what I might respectfully say, bizarre results with proxy advisors that you have one proxy house uh, ad advise that um, advise in favour of, of the REM report, but then you might have uh, another um, proxy advisor who has a different set of criteria um, come to a different conclusion. So um, that really shows the importance of understanding the, the nuances between all of the different stakeholders. Um, one of the things that we do see is, unfortunately, the the vote on the remuneration report has sort of become a bit of a a bit of a default vote on how the company is going. So, it, it, unfortunately, sometimes it doesn't necessarily reflect the, the strength or otherwise of the remuneration practices. It's um, just seen that if the company is going well, it, it seems to get voted up, um, and if it's not going so well, there's a there's a strike. But uh, I think. That sort of scenario, again, is where it, it's important to have experienced um, support and advice to know how to respond, particularly to that first strike, to make sure you don't end up in the, the scenario with a, a second strike and then having to manage the consequences beyond that. And a lot of the time it's, it's just around the levels of engagement and communication with proxy advisors and um, key shareholders and, and um, uh, across the board and also the easiness of um, uh, reading in terms of things like the annual report, the announcements that you're making to market, um, the notice of meeting itself. So, I mean, if you you want people to vote no to something, um, the, the, the surefire way of doing that is making sure they can't understand it. So, <laughs> yeah. so. And also not having those conversations early on enough um, yeah. as well and potentially going into blackout periods where you can't have those conversations and so you've left the run too late. 
Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And look, I think um, in fairness, the, the proxy advisors do publish their criteria, and it's a, it's a matter, it's an onus for the company to um, set about understanding what what they are and staying current with those as well. Mm. So, risk. Talk us through the process of an IPO. The process of an IPO... In look, less than two hours. In, <laughs> <laughs> the shortened version. <laughs> the accelerated three-month version. Yeah. <laughs> look, there, is, um, there are lots of materials available, Deb, in, in terms of the ASX and uh, firms such as ourselves that have published guides in, in a bit more detail. But um, I think it's true to say that not every single IPO is, is done in the same way. It's, it's as many and varied as the types of company that you come across and, and the individual circumstances. So um, sometimes you'll see companies that have had already a strong involvement with one of the uh, broking houses. Um, they may have some of the financials sort of up to date and they're relatively ready to go. Uh, but quite often the, the first discussion that we might be having is um, someone that's read about doing an IPO or they, they know another company that's done it in their sector and so they want to come and have a, a, a chat about the way that they should do it. So one of the things that we do suggest is that very early on in the piece that they make sure they've got the right infrastructure actually to even begin to engage with those other advisors. So um, sometimes that's through a company secretarial function or um, just someone who has um, some experience in the IPO process, just to come in and sort of marshal all of, all of those different moving parts. So engaging with accountants, um, stockbrokers, um, the legal team, share registries and that sort of thing. So what sort of, um, you know, uh, requests or proposals are you going to request from those different teams? How are you actually going to choose your advisors. So there's a whole array of advisors that need to be a part of that IPO process. Um, once that team's sort of been selected, um, there's various degrees of uh, engagement. I, my personal preference is to engage with the ASX very early and actually go and meet with them, talk through the proposal and identify any particular issues that might relate to that company or that sector at that time. And Quite often there'll be um, a few little quirks, particularly if a company's done a lot of acquisitions, how is that going to be presented in terms of the information that needs to go forward to the regulators? So um, a bit of early engagement there to make sure you've got the runway right, mapping out the timetable, mapping out the step plans and those sorts of things. And then what we think works really well is to sort of divide and conquer a bit because you've got different work streams. So you do have a prospectus work stream. Um, there'll be other aspects, as you mentioned before, Deb, about getting the right sort of policies in place. Um, there may actually be a need to go and appoint additional um, directors, particularly non-executive directors. So there's a, a bit of a uh, process. So um, some of those bits of work are sequential, but other bits are sort of happening concurrently. So you need a team that's sort of been experienced and can uh, guide you through all of those things. Once you um, uh, are moving through that, you'll also have an opportunity um, as the company is refining its prospectus, it will also be refining its um, pitch document. So typically a PowerPoint slide uh, that tells the story and there'll be opportunities to refine that talking to um, the the internally to the due diligence committee, then talking to the broker internally before that sort of goes to a, a sort of a, a more, uh, a, to a broader audience um, in terms of sophisticated investors and doing roadshows and that sort of thing. So it's really important to, for the companies to kind of build up that experience uh, as they go through and really refine things. So that uh, ultimately when the prospectus and the market presentations are going on, um, it's as polished as it can be. And the, the sort of questions that come up through that process have hopefully already been asked and already been thought about. Uh, and then um, obviously there's a, a, a lodgement of the prospectus um, with um, ASX and ASIC, uh, some regulatory things that happen uh, which are uh, amusing to uh, us lawyers <laughs> but um, may not be as amusing to your listeners. So um, the, the company during that time will be 
um, finalising with the broker, um, raising the, the money that they need, um, and that offer is usually open for a few weeks. And then, uh, again, there's a few processes at the tail end of that before the company um, becomes listed. And then, um, you know, you need to be ready from that day one of listing that uh, it's it's a new world. So, um, it, as I mentioned before, it, it can be a process. It can be as short as around three months, but um, because of those sorts of things that do tend to come up in terms of appointing other non-executive directors or if you're trying to manage an acquisition or you might have a particular technology or something that you're waiting to get to a particular milestone point, um, it, it can be as long as a year as well. Mm. I'm just sort of thinking as you're talking, Reese. Um, some of the unforeseen challenges that come up for um, organisations might be things like um, not engaging maybe a share registry early enough and not thinking about... Um, their existing shareholder base and issued capital and potentially um, having to look at escrow agreements and things like that to meet ASX listing rule requirements. Um, some of the other things might be like um, not allowing enough fuel in the tank to actually go through the whole process and potentially not having the funds in place to, um, I guess, pay for all these different advisors Um and the other thing might be um, potentially not looking at an IPO straight away. Maybe they need to go down the path of a, a debt model or um, a private equity model first before they look at a public equity model. Um, just, yeah. Yeah, look, there's um, <laughs> some really good thoughts in there, Ainsley. Um, probably if I can tackle sort of that latter aspect first, um, the concept of doing a pre-IPO capital raise I think is is um, really important. So if you can get some cornerstone investors um, both to contribute some capital in terms of covering the costs of all those things you need to do but also getting that engagement so that um, you know you're well supported going into the IPO and the market can actually sometimes see you know that you've, you've got um, the, attracted that cornerstone investor or investors already, um, that's a really positive sign um, that the market will quite often look to see that you've done that. The other thing that um, is a, an important feature of IPOs at the moment is this concept of doing a suitability application. So um, historically, um, it was reasonably common just to to have a, a bit of a light touch sort of engagement with uh, ASX in particular and then lodge the prospectus and um, go forward towards listing. Um, there'd been some concerns, I think, particularly uh, in the early stage companies, um, particularly around the technology space, just understanding um, the quality of the key contracts that they may have. Uh, so, you know, they were they long-term contracts or were they easily capable of being terminated? Were they with genuine third parties or related parties? And ASX um, have responded to that by um, looking to receive a suitability application during the listing process. And um, I, I think from the engagement that... Um, we've had with ASX in recent times, having a pre-IPO raise is actually uh, one of the factors that, that may be in certain circumstances considered a positive because it has shown that ability to, to fund the company. You're not going to fall off a cliff um, day one after the listing and you've attracted some of the, the smart money that might understand that space. So, um, you know, whether that's technology companies, biotechnology companies, um, early stage mining companies, um, I think just thinking about how you go about illustrating um, the quality of the proposition and that might be the strength of the board, having people involved that have done it before, so to speak, um, having that well-funded sort of uh, proposition that you're taking, um, as well as the, the quality of the advisors. So, um, look, there, there's um, probably some different thoughts about what level of audit or accounting support um, might be appropriate to certain sizes of companies, but I think increasingly um, you need to be um, looking at having uh, a team that's definitely got experience and specifically experience in the IPO space so that you've got that credibility both with the regulators and with the market as well. I think even... Um I'm just coming up with so many more thoughts as you're talking, but, um, you know, like even a, a change in entity type and thinking about those structures and whether or not they um, 
implement a new vehicle, uh, a new yeah. co-structure, um, or whether they do a conversion from a PTY to a public, all these things sort of could just go, oh, yeah, you've got to do this, you've got to do this, you've got to do that, yeah. Yeah, look, absolutely. And, I mean, that's sometimes a, a, a consideration in terms of that conversion because there is a, a time period involved with that, sort of the one-month notice, but there's also publication period. And depending on how big your shareholder base is in terms of existing shareholders, the the complexity of potentially pulling together a meeting to get that approved. So, again, that's something that in theory should just be essentially a form but actually maybe a, a six, eight-week sort of exercise, um, if not longer sometimes, depending on how many signatures you, you need to uh, chase down to make it happen. So um, there's absolutely some... Uh, complexities around the, the, the probably the accounting and tax advice that you need if you're going to have a, a top co structure, so implement a new holding um, vehicle. There's some liability issues associated with IPOs that people need to understand as well and understand with particular structures how is that going to look, um, you know, potentially different for them. And I think the sort of other um, major sort of... Uh, aspect is whether the IPO is also going to include a vendor sell-down as well. So um, that is um, absolutely fine and doable, but it raises a number of considerations, certainly from a market perspective. Um, You need to be working closely with the broker um, to understand the messaging. So it's not just um, sort of someone cashing out. It's it's, um, if it's um, more the case that it's it's, uh, to free up a little bit of capital and, you know, to enable um, some fair reward for people that have worked hard over many years and that's a a sensible juncture to do it um, in terms of unlocking a bit of value for them. I think the market can understand that, but there's a balance to all of those things. Uh, But there's certainly some legal accounting and tax issues that that fit with it. And again, they're not the sort of things that you want to try and resolve um, on on the eve of an IPO. (laughs) Uh, And um, I think you mentioned before as well, Ainsley, about the importance of um, just some of those basics as well. So even before you get to the more complicated aspects, um, quite often we do find where companies haven't worked with a a qualified company secretary, um, they might have... um, been sort of maintaining their own sort of share register and um, I I think invariably where it's been a private company structure and there hasn't been that focus um, having someone with the the qualifications and experience to actually manage that um, sometimes it can actually be very difficult to reconcile what the register actually looks like and um, that can be magnified when you go to IPO because you quite often you're doing share splits and that sort of thing as well and actually um, you know particularly in in uh, some of the startup space um, a, a lot of those small tech companies there might be an electronic record that someone's kind of maintained but you know what sort of documents have they signed up in the meantime in terms of convertible note agreements and are there overlapping provisions and how does that all calculate out that can actually be quite a a difficult exercise and then you obviously need that packaged up quite nicely so that when it goes to the share registry they're getting the the proper data to start with because they're then um uh, adding on top of that with the, the the newly issued shares and you know potentially other things that might be happening around the IPO as well whether that's a sell down or um, uh, maybe an acquisition there might be some consideration shares um, going out as well so there's a whole raft of things there um, and I think probably we'd um, say there's there's also um, needs to be a, a bit of a focus on the registry that you're choosing to um, to provide those services post-IPO. Um, the, the, the cheapest option may not always be the most effective option depending on um, what sort of company you are and, and what you're looking to, to do going forward. Yeah, and sometimes there's also a misconceived um, perception that the larger share registries are actually going to be more expensive. But in some instances, they can actually come in um, at a more competitive price point because they've got large resources, large scale, etc. So they can actually deliver it potentially at a lower price point. So, um, but I think some companies just choose not to even um, obtain quotes from some of those service providers. And same goes with legal services and things like that as well. Um, just that misconception that they might not necessarily be. 
um, cost competitive? Yeah, look, I mean, I have um, actually had it put to me a couple of times about whether you need a share registry, which, um, you know, I think anyone who's been involved with listed companies will appreciate what it is that share registries do um, day to day. So there's obviously all of the the, uh, share transactions, but then assistance with things like um, notices of meeting, um, dividend payments and that sort of thing. And, you know, particularly where it comes to things like paying dividend checks overseas or in multiple currencies or managing a um, dividend reinvestment plan or even sometimes the employee share plan itself will be outsourced to the registry. And having that sort of seamless service is, um, you know, invaluable. So you need that right level of capacity. Um, And I think um, most of the registries are, are happy to provide a quote, but most importantly, I think, to meet and sit down and understand culturally again are they the right fit for um, what your organisation needs at this point in time. Mm. And um, are you finding that, um, so I've noticed a few articles recently about um, the local exchanges instead as an alternative for some industries instead of ASX listing. Um, Are you seeing a shift in that space? Look, I think there's um, definitely been some commentary around that space, Ainsley, and I think... um, uh, there's obviously been a bit, bit of a um, resurgence with uh, some of those alternatives. Um, I think uh, if you go back a little while, a, a lot of the companies that were choosing to list on, say, the NSX were um, former cooperatives, so they were wanting the benefits of a, a liquid market and being able to trade in a, in a regulated market um, that was compliant. Uh, the... Um, I think the proposition is these days that um, there might be a willingness to 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 look at um, that for all sorts of companies and, and potentially some of those uh, high growth or smaller companies um, that, that might look to emerge. I think it, it's really a question of weighing up the costs and benefits for the particular company. So there may be some cost savings, but equally, does it provide the liquidity uh, that that you would need? Um, and I think similarly, there's arguments about overseas listings as well. So quite often, there's different trends that you mm. would see as well. Do you find that there's many overseas listings presently? Mm. Um, look, actually, for for the last few years, a, a, a lot of um, what we've seen is actually uh, companies look. To list in Australia because of the, you know, perceptions around um, the the quality of the market, and um, there'd been um, probably some of the companies that would previously have looked at an AIM listing or a TSX listing that have actually um, stayed with the Australian market. I think also uh, for a while there were thoughts around. Um, things like the Hong Kong market, but it's obviously um, there were some cost issues there that I think people identified fairly early on, but also now with the environment up there, um, a lot of companies would would shy away from that as well. So actually we've we've seen um, very much uh, companies that we're talking to, if they're looking at listing, they're looking at listing in Australia first and foremost. Mm. So tell us a little bit more about McCulloch Robertson. You're obviously an award-winning law firm and very well respected. Yeah, thanks, Deb. Um, appreciate the opportunity to um, talk about that and uh, how we've, um, uh, I guess, evolved um, being a, a firm that was established in 1926. So we're the largest law firm in, in Queensland and we've got a presence up and down the eastern seaboard. So um, one of the uh, sayings that we have is always won't open new doors. So we've been... Um, looking in recent years at at how we shape our firm. So we're a a full-service firm um, and operate across a a range of different areas. But if I come back to the comment I made before about um, what's happening in the ASX-listed space influencing a lot of organisations, I think um, that's definitely true of our organisation as well. So, uh, you know, things like looking at leadership, having the the growth mindset and that sort of thing have been um, really important to us in creating a depth and breadth of leader. And um, I think talking about leadership and and maybe that sort of cross back to the ASX listed space, um, we didn't get a chance specifically before to talk about things like diversity policies. Um, And I think it's important for ASX-listed companies to realise that's just not a, a tick-the-box exercise. It's culturally 
you know, what do you mean by diversity and is it um, gender, race, age, and that sort of thing. Um, and I think for us that's been the, 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 the same journey that, that we've been on to make sure that we do have programs in place, um, but not, not just in terms of um, numbers, but actually how we broaden our our thinking process, so particularly around that unconscious bias space, and I think for me as a leader, that's that's been a a, a fantastic journey to um, try and broaden my thinking. And um, I think one of the interesting things we've seen from a leadership perspective in the, the last couple of days was the comments by Ida Buttrose about the millennials all needing a hug and not working hard enough. Now, um, <laughs> that's probably a great example of, of a, a bias that, um, you know, and it's, it's probably particularly um, disappointing for um, her employees at the ABC, which you would think is um, meant to be uh, a diverse organisation um, across all of those different um, spectrums of diversity. Uh, and then you've got the the chair um, basically bagging part of the the workforce. Um, and I should say that uh, you know it it doesn't play well from an employee experience perspective. And um, you know my experience, it's probably an un- unfounded comment. The the um, certainly the millennials in our organisation are um, very engaged. Um, they're innovative, they're passionate about a lot of issues that are going on around the world and that energy um, can be certainly harnessed to deliver some fantastic results. Um, and I think also from a organisational perspective, you have to realise um, who your clients are and that you are going to be engaging with a diverse range of clients. So um, they're going to want to see um, you know, a diverse range of of providers within the organisation. So, yeah, that, that one just slipped out at me as um, probably a, a, a pretty good example of a, an unconscious uh, bias, potentially. Yeah, and I think um, as well, from an organisational perspective, the pendulum may be swinging too far one way as well in terms of, um, you know, you see a lot of things around trying to promote um, women, um, disability um uh, indigenous communities, etc., but then sometimes it's inadvertently leaving out um, men now as well. So it's almost like it's it's um, instead of just being equality as a whole, it, it's sort of um, having now a little bit of bias towards some other um, elements there. Yeah, look, I think that's um, a really um, interesting sort of. Uh, aspect to, you know, I think all organisations um, have to um, take on board um, that sort of feedback if, if um, people feel that the pendulum has has uh, swung um, too far towards certain priorities at, at um, the expense of others. But I, I don't think it needs to be an, an either-or sort of debate, and, and that's where the debate sort of sometimes... Uh, goes astray um, and I think uh, certainly within our organisation um, uh, you know we've been very cognisant about um, things like men's health initiatives and um, you know things like Movember and supporting other things um, you know particularly uh, mental health issues it might be particular uh, to men who uh, you know may be juggling a number of responsibilities um, that's not to say that that's at anyone else's expense um, and I, th- I think, uh, as I say, sometimes that debate gets lost in the, the either or um, mm. that you need to be making a choice. So I think it's about a balance uh, between all of those issues. Um, one of the other things is that I think you can take um, the learnings from particular spaces and, um, you know, particularly around flexible work that uh, one of the, the things that we've seen um, and I think um, the... Wajia report from last year actually emphasised the importance of having examples of uh, flexible work in the workplace where males are actually um, looking at flexible work choices as well. So there have been significant advances in recent years around flexible work uh, in other pockets, but actually um, there hadn't been a lot of examples of male leaders actually taking up that opportunity. Um, we've been... Um, fortunate in our organisation to have a couple of male partners who uh, have for quite some time had flexible work arrangements and um, they're quite 
um, happy to champion that and actually say how it's worked for them and the issues that they've faced. And I think um, the other issue that we're seeing, Ainsley, is out of the COVID response. So we're actually surveying our staff at the moment and um, I think what COVID has done is actually accelerated a lot of issues um, for the workforce in terms of flexible work and um, so we've actually, in recent times, um, communicated quite broadly to our staff that we're we're more we're happy to um, engage on, on a, a discussion around flexible work. And I think it's been a real eye opener. So that previously, people who may have had um, you know potentially a, a bit of a negative attitude towards flexible work uh, are actually now converts because they've seen it work there's a trust in the employees that um, everyone's going to do the right thing um, and the productivity sort of argument that used to historically be raised had been nullified so I think again that's just a, a discussion sort of for for each individual employee and and their particular uh, working environment and, and their particular company. Um, but uh, I think, you know, it, it has demonstrated that it, that it can work. There are some things that you need to be sort of aware of as an organisation in terms of that impact, in terms of, say, for example, training of more junior staff. They're not, if everyone's on flexible work, they're not getting that learning by osmosis that they might otherwise have the benefit of. Um, and at the end of the day, you also can't lose sight of the client perspective so there mm. needs to be a threshold in terms of you know uh, are you sustaining um what you need to do for for um client needs but our experience to date is um that with all of the requests that have been made that there's been an opportunity to come to a um suitable agreement and and we're definitely uh seeing a, a significant upswing in terms of flexible work arrangements as well still that human interaction sort of body language element that you can't get from flexible working isn't there there is there is and and look there's certainly a, a preference that you know some meetings are face to face um again it's a, a, a individual employee and team by team discussion so you know we have um, one of our, our teams that does actually a daily sort of stand-up meeting for 15 minutes and make sure that everyone's um, got their um, sort of uh, tasks ahead of them for the day and, and that there is that high degree of communication. And that means that people that are on flexible work arrangements can dial into that, um, but there is still the opportunity um, on a daily basis for everyone to... Um, see each other and and the majority of the time they are seeing each other face to face so uh there is a a, a balance um and you know things like social activities and that sort of thing as well where there's a little bit of you know bonding there's no substitute for that i think we've all found the the, the virtual drinks that everyone's been doing for the last few months at, at some point sort of the wears a bit thin and I think everyone was in, enthusiastic for the first few weeks or months and you know there was all sorts of different things going on or themes for 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 those but um yeah there there is no substitute for, for human interaction at the end of the day so what you need to be do, doing is being mindful of um making sure that when those things are set that they're at a time that you know conveniently people can can try and participate in um, that you're not inadvertently excluding someone um, by you know scheduling say the same lunch event every Wednesday or if you know a particular person has Wednesdays as their you know, flexible work from home day so yeah I don't think you can really run um you know, a virtual high ropes course off the monkey bars off Zoom in the backyard. Can you really? <laughs> uh, I'm not sure about that one. Either. I'm just going liability issues. <laughs> <laughs> Plenty of other creative things that were going yeah. on uh, during that whole process. So, yeah. yeah. Um, so I, I actually read an article um, pre-COVID that was around um, uh, changing mindsets in organisations. I think it might have even been like a Harvard Business mm. Review around instead of being work from, um, you know, work from home policies. It was actually, um, they'd coined the acronym WFA, which was work from anywhere mm. and around retention of talent. And, um, you know, when some key players actually want to have, um, you know, a sabbatical or something like that and they want to travel the world for a year and 
obviously not at present, but um, allowing them to still um, retain some clients and maybe work part-time to help fund their, um, I guess, travels. And um, the other thing was around... um, generational shift as well and the younger you know it might be technology and like you say it's dependent on the individual and I think Mm -hmm. it's also dependent on the um, job function and potentially organizations were seeing um, broadening the productivity because they were able to run almost 24 hours a day because they had certain pockets of teams that would work late in the evening there's certain um, individuals that uh, might be happy to sit there and respond to emails on their phone while they're watching TV or, you know, certain um, individuals that might be happy to uh, jump on and do some coding or tech-type work late at night and things like that. So, Yeah, absolutely. I think um, it, it is, again, part of that individual conversation and understanding what people's preferences are. For some people, that, that would be quite a stressful prospect. Um, other people don't mind multitasking and um, see that actually as not a bad use of their day if, if they can be doing something at, at that time of night, but it's enabled them to, uh, say, go to a kid's sporting event or um, a school event of, of, of some sort. So um, I think that flexibility and, and just common sense and communication definitely wins out. Um, the flip side, though, I think as a leader is set, leading by example and being mindful too that when you send an email if it is after hours on or on a weekend actually how you flag that you're not expecting an immediate response so you know just being mindful to put it in the subject heading not for immediate action or something like that because otherwise sometimes there can be a, a bit of pressure or, or stuff if you haven't communicated is it implied that you're expecting a response immediately and that sort of thing so the way in which we communicate still catching up a little bit. Yeah. Um, but the technology piece is is um, really important. And I think, you know, we've been lucky as an organisation that um, we were able to move pretty seamlessly uh, to, you know, the fully virtual environment. And um, if I actually look back on why that is, um, in, in as much as we'd all like to take credit for good planning as an organisation, and we do have a fantastic... Um, Chief Operating Officer and, and Head of IT that have been instrumental in that. Um, part of it was actually the learnings that we'd had out of the Queensland floods. So that disaster where not only did you have um, limitations on physically accessing the building, but then um, you also had problems with uh, you know electrical power supply to the CBD. So a lot of the um, you know the the information servers were, were down. Um, so I think a lot of people um, seriously upgraded their disaster recovery planning uh, after that. Now what we've been through is is um, sort of a, a multifaceted um, event, and it, it sort of moved beyond you know just a, a pure DRP sort of situation, obviously. But um, I think to to have had that, and um, I've actually seen that. Um, uh, across the board sort of talking to clients and organisations that that seemed to be sort of a pivotal point for them a few years ago to actually get serious about it where whereas previously I think a lot of people sort of put the having a disaster recovery plan sort of somewhere in the in the <laughs> never draw. never yeah, the, the, the bottom <laughs> drawer and you know you, you, you anecdotally hear stories of organisations having to run out and um, you know, buy a whole heap of laptops at the the start of this, or you know, people literally unbolting towers and taking them home and putting them in their home office. So, um, kitchen you know, table, kitchen table, and look, that that's one of the things that we um, need to be really mindful of uh, uh, in terms of an organisation that everyone's going to have you know, particular backgrounds and um, what might work for some of us in in terms of. Um, uh, flexibility um, you know other people might be living in a different accommodation situation they might be living in a share house or something like that so their bedroom is their office is is everything you know and that that's a particularly stressful thing so you know we're really mindful that um, there would have been a lot of stressors on on people during that time mm-hmm. there's a lot of stress around people as they're trying to um, work out the return to the office and I think we've been particularly um, lucky up here in Queensland but 
certainly I'm aware, obviously, in, in Sydney, um, public transport situation still prohibitive um, and uh, obviously um, there's a lot of issues in, in Melbourne at the moment. So being mindful of, of those things and what support you provide to your staff, it's, it's not just... Um, uh, saying that you got through COVID because you, you managed to get through some of the work. It's actually, well, have you looked after people? Um, do they feel like they've been looked after? And I think you'll see um, that manifest itself, um, you know, once the economy picks up. So ha- has this been an opportunity to build loyalty with staff or are they, um, you know, otherwise looking to... Um, uh, you know, they, they might look at other opportunities if they feel that they haven't been looked after. Yeah, I was having visuals there of people rowing their boat with their towel up under their arm, you know, <laughs> getting in there to get out. Um, and even um, there was a Telstra ad on TV at the moment with um, uh, offering, um, you know, I think it was NBN or something like that for students and challenges with working Mm. from home and I think the mum goes you know she's got her laptop and she's trying to get on a zoom meeting and she goes into the bedroom and the husband's in there on his computer and she goes into the kitchen and the son's in there on his computer so she ends up in the daughter's bedroom and there's pink fairy lights in the background (laughs) (laughs) so I can see all that playing out but um before we wrap up today Reese, um have you got sort of um, you know, McCulloch Robertson, employer of choice multiple times, women's employer of choice multiple times. What um, top three tips do you have for listeners to, I guess, um, reach that type of level to be an employer of choice? Um, you've covered quite a few of them, you know, diversity, communication, um, flexible work arrangements, but just as a high level, have you got top three tips in that space? And culture. We didn't touch on culture. Culture, yeah. Look, absolutely, and I think that's the key thing: is is uh, culture. It's it's what you value. So um, we um, are big believers, I guess, just in in generally the concept of fairness. So if you start with that as a a, a, a starting point, and um, you, you look at um, what you've got across your organisation and what historically might have happened, and do you just need to look at those things afresh and you know, we, as I mentioned, we do place significant uh, value on that. So um, our uh, top HR person is actually our chief people officer and um, that was a conscious choice that we made um, looking at some of the information, particularly coming out of the US, about organisations that do have a chief people officer. So instead of it, HR being an administrative function, it's actually a strategic and cultural function so that you can actually embed uh, all of that across the, the the workforce, and look at strategically how you're going to respond to those challenges, and have sort of that growth mindset in terms of being open to changing things. So I think, um, firstly, um, yeah, v- valuing and and seeing the importance of having a diverse workforce is is number one. And there's plenty of data and plenty of information around that. There's um, actually a fantastic um, Harvard article and I think that's one of the things for listeners is there's a lot of free resources out there that you can just quickly read and challenge, I guess, some of the thinking. And um, they do in that particular article that I'm thinking of talk about all facets of um, diversity across uh, gender, age, um, you know, religion, uh, you know, all, all all different facets and it's um really comes back to that sort of making sure you've got diversity of thought within the organization uh at at all levels and how you're providing a conduit for that so first and foremost value um secondly is with those um strategies looking at things with a bit of an innovative focus so um we were one of the first firms, for example, to have a um, policy around um, gender-neutral pay, so um, doing what we call a black box system. So when people are coming in, we're looking at benchmarking salaries, so we're not actually putting pressure on people to negotiate a salary coming in, and um, also actually um, obviously looking at um, when we're doing annual reviews to make sure um, that... um, there's no inherent bias built into our remuneration systems. And um, again, 
there's probably some assumptions that um, it, it is fair, but unless you're actually doing that exercise and then responding to it over a period of time, you, you wouldn't actually really know. So I think actually being innovative and having the, the systems uh, around it is, is really important. And then I think thirdly is just that continuing to learn. So um, all of these trends that we see and, and we hear about continue having discussions exactly like this one uh, and um, understand what might be behind it and, and ask. And there's usually a lot of people around that are willing to, to have a discussion. So being open-minded about it, I think. And um, top three tips for organisations potentially looking at IPO? Top three tips. Um, get the right advisors. Um, probably... Tip two would be listen to the advisors. <laughs> um, and and uh, three is give enough time to listen to the advisors. So I think if you've got the right people, um, you're listening and you allow enough time, it's going to um, maximise the, the benefit of the IPO, maximise the value to you. So, um, you know, it's it's a, a, a genuine um benefit um that that comes from doing it um so it shouldn't just be a, a what's the minimum it's actually if you do it right take the right advice it will add value to you in the longer term great advice yes thank you so much um reese uh, your wonderful insights and your top tips and everything it's been a, a really um a thrilling discussion today. my pleasure thank you <laughs> So uh, that's about all we have time for today for our listeners. So um, thank you very much, Reese, again for joining us. And um, yes, stay tuned for another episode of Wise Up. That's all for today. Until next time, happy podcasting. And remember, if you're enjoying the show, check out our other episodes and all things governance at www.threewiseowls.com.au.